0: Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the 106th Psalm. Psalm 106. We're going to begin in verse 36. You'll find that on page 506 in your pew Bible in front of you. And we will be uh, spending, uh, bouncing around a little bit in this Psalm. So it will be helpful, I think, to, to have this scripture out as we work our way through this passage this morning. As we consider the sanctity of human life, especially as it pertains to the issue of abortion. And Psalm 106, I think, has direct applications for us today. And so in Psalm 106, verse 36, "Hear now the word of God. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. "...whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they become unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power." Many times He delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, He looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. For their sake, He remembered His covenant and relented according to the abundance of His steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God! And gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we want to praise you today through your word. Come now as we submit ourselves to it. We place ourselves under it that You by Your Spirit might indwell our hearts and open our eyes to see Your Word, that we may more faithfully follow Christ, more fully love Him, and more truly seek to give Him glory in all we say and do, we pray in His name. Amen. The, The horror of abortion was highlighted this summer when a video was released showing Dr. Deborah... the Senior Director of Medical Services for Planned Parenthood, discussing the intentional harvesting of organs from babies aborted in Planned Parenthood clinics. While she was enjoying her salad over lunch, she explains that there's a great demand for fetal livers, but I quote, a lot of people want intact hearts these days. She continues explaining the process of this chilling procedure, saying, we've been very good at getting the heart, lung, and liver... So I'm not going to crush that part. I'll basically crush below and I'll crush above, and I'm going to see if I could get it all intact. End quote. President Al Moler of Southern Seminary says, The sight of the senior medical director of Planned Parenthood reaching for salad as she explicitly discusses tearing apart these in the womb is impossible to reduce to words. And yet, sadly, I think to our great national shame, even after these videos were released, not one penny of the over $540 million of federal funding was cut from Planned Parenthood as they continue to perform one out of three abortions in America while the federal government pays for it. In fact, it was since Roe versus Wade in 1973, the last 43 years, that in America 59 million babies have been aborted, or one out of four American pregnancies. And though many nations permit abortion, America is one of only ten nations that have legalized abortion after week 14. In fact, America, even more than that, is only one of four nations in this world that allows abortions after viability joining Canada, China, and North Korea. And yet America is not the first culture, the first society to turn on its own children, it took place according to Psalm 106 in ancient Israel. In fact, this psalm is a a powerful psalm throughout that summarizes the sin of the, the people of God from the point of His redemption out of Egypt to the point in which they enter the promised land. But I want you to note how this psalm ends. You see that in verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord, or literally, Hallelujah, as we sang this morning. And so the psalmist ends and says, God is worthy to be blessed. He is worthy of our praise. In fact, you know how the psalm begins. Verse 1, praise the Lord, Hallelujah, he says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then in the middle of the psalm, there's a list of the sins of the people of God and the consequences of those sins, the the pain that that sin has brought upon them. And and, and we have sin after sin listed for us. And the, the point of the psalm, when you read it all together, is that though their sin is great, they begin the psalm and they end the psalm by reminding themselves, and I hope, reminding us that God is greater, that God is worthy of our praise. That God is glorious and powerful and deserves our longings and our heart and our ambitions and our desires. That God is gracious and merciful and forgiving to the repentant. That His steadfast love endures forever. And so today, as we consider the tragedy of abortion, can we follow the advice of the psalmist? And remember from the beginning of this time to the very end that our God abounds with forgiving grace. He overflows with abundant mercy. In fact, as we see there in verse 48, let all the people say, Amen. That's your cue. Let all the people say, Praise the Lord. But despite God's goodness and His kindness, Israel rebelled against Him, as you see in verse 6. Both we and our fathers, the psalmist says, have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And then the list begins. In verse 7, it says they forgot God's love and power and rebelled against Him at the Red Sea. In verse 13, they say they forgot God's work and gave themselves over to lustful cravings. In verse 19-21, through they they've once again forgot their God and exchanged Him for a golden calf. In verse 24, as they entered the promised land, the Bible says they despised it. In verse 28, they began to yoke themselves with pagans and ate sacrifices to the dead. In verse 32, at Meribah, the Bible says they angered the Lord with their rash lips. In verse 36, they began to serve idols. And in the passage, we'll focus mostly this morning. In verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. Now, by the way, the, the list can continue. I mean, that wasn't the last of Israel's sin. But interestingly enough, this is where the psalmist ends. He doesn't continue to list any more sins. The the last sin mentioned there is in verse 37. This child sacrifice. Which I think makes you wonder, why does he stop here? Perhaps it is because it's hard to imagine getting any lower than that. It's hard to go farther down into sin than this. In fact, John Piper, I think rightly says in commenting on this passage, perhaps because most human beings would feel that this was the bottom of the downward spiral of the dethroning of God and the dehumanizing of man, he stops here. Of course, child sacrifice biblically was forbidden. God was well aware of the practice that was taking place in the surrounding nations. And so in many places, including Leviticus 18, he says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. And yet, despite God's prohibition, and I think the, the natural disdain for this act, they did it anyways. Ezekiel chapter 16 says, You slaughtered My children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to the idols. In Second Kings 17, it says, They burned their sons and daughters as an offering. And here in Psalm 106, He says that they have sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Notice the intensity of the language as we read on in verse 38. They poured out innocent blood, He says. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted... With blood. And you read these words, it's almost unimaginable. I mean, how can anyone do this? And yet, I would suggest to you that we do something very similar by the thousands in this nation every single day. I want to suggest to you this morning that the child sacrifice of ancient Israel is very similar to the act of abortion that is occurring in America and around this world. I would suggest the first parallel is that they are both sacrifices to idols. Number one, if you're I know you don't have notes on your sheet, but if you're keeping notes, it is a sacrifice to idols. You see verse thirty six says they served idols, they, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. At verse thirty eight, they whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, he says. To sacrifice is to give up something valuable. In order to gain something better. And they would normally sacrifice a sheep or a goat perhaps to gain something better from a a deity. But occasionally you'll find cultures that will sacrifice their children. So the Aztecs would sacrifice their children to help the sun god to rise. The Incas would sacrifice their children to promote well-being amongst the community. And ancient Israel would sacrifice their children in order to bring about a good harvest. You see, they they would the, the baby would be killed in order to gain something better than the baby. And I would suggest you that's exactly what's happening all the time through abortion. The baby is being sacrificed in order that that the future dreams may be fulfilled or we might cover our shame or we might advance our career or we might enjoy unrestrained sexual activity. That we're giving up a child in order that we might get something better. We may not call that a deity. It's certainly not a deity. But I would tell you it's no less an idol than it was in the days of ancient Israel. In fact, you even listen to the language in which we use to justify this practice. We say things like, well, a woman has a right to choose. And you notice even in, in saying that, who has ultimate authority here? Who are we are We giving ultimate power here over life and death? It is not to God. It is not to one who has made us. But it is to our ourselves. There's no thought to God whatsoever. It's the idea that we have become our own gods. We are in charge of our own life. We, we, we bow our knee to no one. And the result is that children are sacrificed to idols. They're giving up in order to gain something better. In fact, I find the words of Mary Elizabeth William, who wrote an article on January 23rd, 2013, entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Somewhat startling. She writes, I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a life inside of me. I believe that the fetus is a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less pro choice. And we, I, I just, I want to stop there and I think, how can that possibly be, right? I mean, yes, of course, she says it's a, it's a human. But I'm, I'm not any less pro choice because of that. And she, she explains why. You want to know how someone could come to that thought. She says, here it is, quote, here's the complicated reality in which we all live. All life is not equal. A fetus can be human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She is the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances should automatically trump the rights of the entity inside of her always. End quote. See, yes, it's life, she says, but it's but it's not equal to my life. It's less valuable life and we have the power and we get to decide who lives and who dies. And if this life gets in the way of my dreams and my ambition, or as she puts it, what is right for her and her circumstance, I have the right to end that life. And I, I, it is chilling to me. It sounds like Germany from the 1940s. We have the right to decide. All life is not equal. We've heard that before, I think. Well, it's not only a sacrifice to idols. The psalmist tells us that what ancient Israel was doing was a sacrifice of their children. You see that there in verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. So they're not giving up sheep or oxen, but these are little boys or girls. In fact, he explains the process in verse 38. They poured out innocent blood. We know uh, anthropologists have told us from surrounding nations that what they would do is they would take the children and they slit their throats, just like they would a sheep or an oxen and pour out the blood upon the idol in order to receive whatever blessing they want from that. They they poured out the blood the Bible says. And just as Mary Elizabeth Williams says, the human life is in her womb. It's not it's not a massive tissue, it is it is a child. And in fact, science has told us, it, told us this. We we know now what we did not know in nineteen seventy three when the Supreme Court ruled. We know, by the way, that most abortions in America take place between week 8 and week 10. We know at 8 weeks of development that the babies suck their thumbs, they respond to sound, and there is increasingly evidence, increasing evidence that they actually dream when they sleep. They recoil from a needle. We've watched by ultrasound. Doctors draw their blood through the heel, and the baby will withdraw his heel. You know why? Because it hurts. Right? The baby has a nervous system that if the hurt on the heel goes to the brain and says, Ouch, you need to get away from that. We know that in eight weeks the heart is pumping, the liver is making cells, the kidneys are clearing fluid, right? And, and I've had the great fortune of looking at many ultrasounds. Right? I have. And you know what I, 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 would, I would say to the technician? I say, look, is it, is it a boy or girl? I would never say, I never once, never occurred to me, will it be a boy or a girl? Oh, no, is that my child? Is it a boy or a girl? And you know, she'll tell me. You know why? Because he he has his parts right there in early gestation. He's he's put together. It's a it's a child, just as the Bible affirmed before science finally caught up to it. For Jeremiah and and Paul. Both acknowledge that God formed me in the womb, that God, while I was in the womb, knew me by name. John the Baptist recognized Jesus in the womb. In fact, Elizabeth would, would prophetically see Mary, who we believe is, has been pregnant with Jesus for about one week. And she would say, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? Not the, not, not, not a blob of tissue in her womb, but you are a mother, Mary, because there is a, a baby in you. In fact, word to describe the baby of Jesus in Luke is the same. Uh, Luke 1 is while he's in his mother's womb is the exact same term used to describe the baby when Mary lays him in the manger in Luke chapter 2. And the exact same word to describe the babies when they are brought to Jesus that he might lay hands upon them and he might bless them and pray for them. It's a human life. It's a sacrifice of children. And, it, and if that's the case, I don't know how this doesn't, to be honest, I don't know how this doesn't end it. And we say things like, wait a second, we, we have a right to privacy with our doctor. Of course you do. You have a right to privacy with your doctor unless you and your doctor are planning to do serious harm to someone else. And then your right to privacy ends, right? We, we invade people's privacy all the time when they begin to plan to harm other people. You don't have a right to privately plan harm on others. If it's a child, you don't have that right if you are planning to harm them. Oh, we say, well, we have a freedom to choose. Well, yeah, you have freedom to choose. But you don't have freedom to choose everything. You can't choose to eliminate a, a toddler if, if they become inconvenient. That's, that's a crime. Right? No, no woman has a freedom to choose to take the life of a child. Well, we say, well, if, if we make abortion illegal, we're going we're gonna to drive women to the alleyways. And, and I think there's about a dozen different responses to that statement. But let me just give you one. If, if it's a baby... Should we therefore make it easier easier for her to take the life of her baby? Right. You know, robbing a bank is dangerous. Should we therefore make it safer for bank robbers? Right? If, if it's a baby, if it's taken of a life, we we should be motivated by trying to make it safe for them. We should be speaking up to protect the life that's in danger. Well, it's the woman's body. We say. Well, I would like to humbly suggest to you, it's not the woman's body that we're talking about. It's the baby's body. That's in danger. If The baby is not the woman. They are separate. They are distinct. The baby has all his own organs, his own DNA, his own blood type, his own dreams, his own pain. It's not the woman's body. It's the baby's body. He's in the woman's body. I, I, I grant you that, but it is not the same body. And by the way, if you think that you could do whatever you want with your own body, right, try driving 100 miles an hour home today, right, and do it naked, right, and, <laughs> And see what happens. It's my body, right? And by the way, that's not the application of the sermon. So I'm not, that's rhetorical, okay? Right? Try, try getting drunk and getting behind the wheel. Oh, you'll, you'll put someone in danger. Exactly. You don't have the right to put people in danger, even if it is your own body. You can't do whatever you want with your body if it places people in danger except for abortion and it's an abortion logic doesn't matter i think this is powerfully described as one author discusses the daughter of a family friends named rachel rachel is two months old but she is still six weeks away from being a full-term baby she was born prematurely at 24 weeks in the middle of her mother's second trimester On the day of her birth, Rachel weighed one pound, nine ounces, but dropped to just under a pound soon after. She was so small she could rest in the palm of her daddy's hand. She was a tiny, living, human person. Heroic measures were taken to save this child's life. Why? Because we have an obligation to protect, nurture, and care for other humans who would die without our help, especially little children. Rachel, he says, was a vulnerable, invaluable human being. But get this. If a doctor came into the hospital room and instead of caring for Rachel took the life of this little girl as she lay quietly nursing on her mother's breast, that would be homicide. However, if this same little girl, this very same Rachel was inches away, resting inside her mother's womb, she could legally be killed by abortion. It is a sacrifice of children. And even more than that, thirdly, it is a sacrifice of Our children, if you will. It is a sacrifice of our sons and daughters. As verse 37 says, this is what they're doing. They didn't grab someone else's children. They grabbed their own children. Just as we do through abortion. In abortion, the, the baby being sacrificed is family. We look at the ultrasound, right? And you say, and you ask, you say, "It's it's a son, it's a girl." I I have a girl. We say, "That's my girl." We say, we instinctively understand that is our child, just as the Bible teaches us. You know, when when uh, Samson's mother was uh, was uh, impregnated or pregnant with Samson, God says, "You can't drink wine." Don't drink any wine because that your son in your womb is going to be a Nazarite, and he's not to touch any wine in his entire life. And even from the womb, he says that's your son in there. God tells Samson's mother, and you need to to protect him in this way. The Bible understands these are children. This is why there's such such emotional scars for so many women after abortion. This is why I'm. I'm so fond of these ministries like Mosaic because not only tries to care for the unborn and mothers prior to this decision, but when the decision is made, they, they come after and there's so much care that needs to be given because there's so much emotional damage taking place because we're not made to turn on our children. In fact, one mother writes this. Though I would march myself into blisters for a woman's right to exercise the option of motherhood, I discovered there in the waiting room that I was not the modern woman I thought I was. When my name was called, my body felt so heavy, the nurse had to help me into the examining room. I waited for my husband to burst through the doors and yell, Stop! But of course he didn't. I concentrated on three black spots in the acoustic ceiling while the doctor swabbed my insides with antiseptic. You're going to feel a burning sensation now, he said, injecting Novocaine in the neck of the womb. The pain was swift and severe, and I twisted to get away from him. He was hurting my baby, I reasoned. Stop, I cried. Please stop. He shook his head, with, busy with his equipment. It's too late to stop now. It'll just take a few more seconds. Physically, the pain passed even before the hum of the machine signals that the vacuuming of my uterus was completed. Ten minutes start to finish. I was back on the arm of the nurse. There were 12 beds in the recovery room. Each one had a gaily flowered drawn sheet and a soft green or blue thermal blanket. It was all very feminine. Lying on these beds for an hour or more were the shocked victims of their sex life, their full wombs now stripped clean, their futures less encumbered. Finally then, it was time to leave, she writes. My husband was slumped in the waiting room clutching a single yellow rose wrapped and wet, and a wet paper towel and stuffed into a baggie. We didn't talk all the way home. My husband and I are back planning our summer vacation now, and his career switch. It certainly, doesn't make more, it certainly does make more sense not having a baby right now, we say to each other all the time. But I have this ghost now, a very little ghost that only appears when I am seeing something beautiful like a f- the full moon on the ocean last weekend and the baby waves at me and I wave at the baby of course we have room I cry to the ghost of course we do why is she sad? why does she use her poetic language see a very little ghost whenever she sees something beautiful because God has made us to love our children to protect our children An abortion is not simply a termination of a pregnancy, despite what this world will tell you. It is the the termination of a baby, a child. This is why there is a clinical disorder called post-abortion stress syndrome. This is why women who have abortion are four times more likely to commit suicide. This is why the regional director of Suicides Anonymous testified to the city council, saying the Cincinnati group has seen 5,620 members in 35 months. Over 4,000 of them were women. 1,800 or more had had abortions. There is a direct linkage between suicide attempts and abortions. In fact, one-third of those who attempted abortions that come across her ministry have been post-abortive women. The Bible says in Isaiah 49, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? No, she can't forget that. It is a sacrifice of our children. And perhaps if it could get more disturbing, it is. It is, fourthly, a sacrifice to demons. You see that, verse 37? They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. You see, the Bible says that they're not just idols, there's not statues, there's demonic beings behind them. In fact, the New Testament affirms this. Paul, when trying to help the church at Corinth decide whether they should eat food sacrificed to idols. Paul Paul says, you know, the food offered to idols, he asks this question, is it anything or is an idol anything? No, he says, not anything. It's just a statue. It doesn't matter. But I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. See what Paul is saying, just like the psalmist is saying, that, that behind the idols is not God, but a world of demons. I, I believe behind uh, our, our, our idols of, of self-fulfillment and, and unencumbered future and the idea that we could take life without any regard to it, anything that distorts the image of God and, and, and destroys His image bearers, I believe there are a world of demonic forces behind that. And by the way, I'm not the only one to believe that. Prominent scholars, both Roman Catholic and Protestant, in 2006 entitled wrote an article they entitled, That They May Have Life. They wrote, The blindness of so many of this moral atrocity has many sources, but is finally to be traced to the seductive ways of evil advanced by Satan. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus elsewhere in John 10 and verse 10, perhaps you know this saying the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Revelation 12 says, behold, a great red dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 1 John 3.12 says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. I tell you, the devil hates those who bear the image of God and will do anything to destroy them. I believe that unequivocally, that is the truth of God's word, and I believe demonic forces are behind this plight of abortion, this blight of abortion upon our land. Michael Card, the songwriter, says, I think beautifully and accurately, maybe beautiful is not the right word, but powerfully, not every, now every age has heard it, the voice that speaks from hell, sacrifice your children, and for you it will be well. That's what's happening. Abortion, I tell you, is, is not ultimately an economic issue, it's not a societal issue, it's not a family issue, it's not, certainly not a political issue, a judicial issue, a philosophical issue, it's not even primarily a moral issue. Primarily it is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual battle. In fact, Judith Feltro, who used to work at Planned Parenthood Clinic before she found Christ, writes, We were dedicated, dedicated to the woman's right and dedicated to abortion. That dedication took almost a bizarre religious twist. The abortion clinic was our church. Abortion was the sacrament. The babies were the sacrifice. I say the clinic was our church because the clinic was where we truly worshipped women's reproductive freedom. I tell you, it all appears very secular, doesn't it? And it's all very non-religious and very clinical. But in truth, it is very demonic. I don't think there's any way to explain this this unexplainable blindness that we have against this terrible violence to the weakest people in this world. It is a sacrifice to demons. Fifthly, it is a sacrifice that pollutes the land. You notice at the end of verse 38, the Bible says, the land was polluted with blood. I tell you, as we sacrifice our children to these demonic idols of self-determination on the altar of abortion in the temples of Planned Parenthood, we pollute our land. Our land becomes increasingly unclean. And I don't know if, if you're inclined like me, but I, when I think about... The reality of what's taking place throughout this land. I, I, part of me wonders how long will God forbear us? How, I mean, when, when, when will his long suffering end? If it ended with Israel, at least for a time. You see verse 40? Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. It pollutes this land. You know, when I, I talk about these things, I, I'm well aware that. These are hard truths to think about. I mean, no one came here today hoping we, we get a good sermon on the horror of this act. It, it, it's not something that we, we want to think about. We want to forget it, to be quite honest. But we can't forget it. This is why I think the sanctity of whoever, the third week of January for the last ten years, I've preached a sermon on the terror of this act. And one of the reasons, there are many reasons I do so, but one of the reasons is, is I I want to prepare you. I I want to prepare you who one day will find yourself encountered with an unplanned pregnancy. Whether it's your pregnancy or whether you caused the pregnancy or whether it's your daughter or your granddaughter or whether it's a a close friend that finds themselves in this situation. We know statistically that one out of six women in America who have abortions would self-identify themselves as born-again Christians. Which means some of you just statistically will encounter this. I would trust many of you, whether it's your pregnancy or someone who's reaching out to you. And I want before that time to place in your heart this hatred for this act. That it never even enters your mind as a possibility. I want you to understand there are ministries like Mosaic that are there to love you without judgment in their heart. That they would help you and walk with you through this situation. And I think it's so important to put that in our hearts before we encounter a situation like this. But I also, if one out of six women who have abortion consider themselves to be born-again Christian, the reality is that what well, that means that, that some of you have encountered this. There are some here, just statistically, that have, have been involved in an abortion, whether you've had one or encouraged one or paid for one or pushed one. And, and I, I've talked to many women who have, over my years in pastoral ministry, have been through this situation and there seems to be a recurring theme that that in the middle of that and after that there's this lingering condemnation in their heart and they struggle and maybe you've talked to people like this or maybe you've experienced it. you struggle how do I get past this sin? you know by, by the way the devil doesn't stop his attacks once the abortion is over right he continues it was Russell Moore who said just a a week or so ago, that no one is more pro-choice than Satan on the way to the abortion clinic, and no one is more pro-life than Satan on the way up. Promises of freedom and relief are quickly turned into accusation and assaults on the soul. What seemed like the only way on Friday feels like an unthinkable atrocity on Sunday. And these crushed consciences slip in and out of morning worship, convinced that the preacher's words about forgiveness and mercy apply to everyone else but them. And I tell you, that's not true. That God's mercy will extend to any sinner who will call out for it. There is nothing you can do that will bring you beyond the reach of the grace and the steadfast love of a God who sent His Son into this world to die for sinners. I tell you, sixthly, this is a sacrifice that God will forgive. God will forgive this. If you are in Christ, hear hear what Christ said to the woman of great iniquity. I tell you though, her sins are many. She is forgiven. Tell what the psalmist says that he will take your sin and cast it as far as the east is from the West, or the book of Hebrews says that he will remember your sins no more if you are in Christ. Christ has died for you, Christ has risen for you. I tell you, therefore, as we know in Romans 8:1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. there's none. God does not look upon you with a big scarlet A. He does not think of you as one who has committed these acts. Your abortion does not define you. Jesus does. Amen. You are in Christ. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of His perfect and blameless Son, as He has taken your sin and showered you with His godliness and His righteousness. In fact, it's it's not just taught in the New Testament. It's taught in the Psalm. Look in verse forty-four. It's right after talking about this sin, he says there in verse, nevertheless, right? that is, a, right? in spite of the fact they're sacrificing their sons and daughters to demons, nevertheless, what? He looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I, I was studying this passage this week, and to be honest, I got to verse 44, and I, just, I began to shake my head. I mean, I. I mean, they're, they're sacrificing their children. And, and the psalmist says, nevertheless, God will respond to you out of the abundance of His steadfast love. And you, and you think, God, is it possible that you could forgive those people who did that? Yes, is the answer. A thousand times yes. Because He has put His Son upon a cross. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't look the other way. He understands our sin is, is vile and heinous and a violation of His holiness. And yet He loves us beyond our comprehension to the point where He would place His Son upon the cross for those who would rebel against Him. That's who He is. Right? In fact, this whole psalm, you, you go home and read it this afternoon. It, I mentioned this list after list of their sin. But after every sin it mentions, it re- responds with God responding to the sinful people with grace. This is why he begins at verse 1. It says, praise the Lord. I'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. That's why he ends the psalm. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Why praise the Lord? Because He is abundant in His steadfast love for sinners. One woman in particular took some time to learn of God's love. She writes, 13 years ago, I had an abortion and I was completely alone. When when I saw the pregnancy test, I was scared to death. I was 20 and attending a Christian college. It was not okay that I was pregnant. But at the same time, the thought of that baby already growing inside of me brought me unbelievable joy. I remember actually forcing myself to stop smiling before I went to tell my boyfriend the results of the test. When I walked in, he was sitting there with the phone book open to Planned Parenthood. You can't have this baby, he said. It will ruin my future. How blind I was. I was convinced I had no choice. I couldn't tell anyone. I was ashamed I was pregnant. I was ashamed I had been sleeping with my boyfriend. There seemed to be no escape. And this boy acted like this was the easiest, simplest, and most obvious choice on the planet. He even called Planned Parenthood for me as I sat there sobbing on my bed. He would have made the appointment for me too, but the lady on the phone said I had to do it. So I sat there sobbing into the phone. And she let me make the appointment. She didn't ask if this is what I really wanted. She didn't suggest I call back after I calmed down. No. I was sobbing so uncontrollably that I could barely speak, but she scheduled an appointment anyway. And I went. It seems so obvious now, she says, just don't go. But in that moment, I was 20. I was in love. I was scared. And I was alone. My boyfriend didn't want to talk about it. He told me to move on. I held it in and told no one. I immediately became depressed, filled with suicidal thoughts, and eventually had a severe panic attack. But still, I kept silent. I became a very good actress. I could fake a smile like nobody's business. I was so afraid people would judge me and hate me for what I did. I, I hated me for what I did. I wanted to die. I didn't want to be ever forgiven. I killed my baby. I didn't deserve to live. So I went on pretending, going through the motions and crying myself to sleep every night. My life went on this on like this for another two or three years. Until finally one night I revealed it to my roommate Gwen who didn't judge me or hate me but supported me and loved me. Over those years of secrecy, and in the few years following, when I started to open up to a few people, I began to learn about grace. Growing up in church, she said, I thought I knew what grace was, but I had no idea. I didn't want God to forgive me for what I had done, but a wise woman said to me that if I don't accept God's forgiveness and grace, that is like saying Jesus dying on the cross wasn't enough. Is that what I was saying? God's sacrifice on the cross, His grace and mercy being poured out for this broken, sinful world wasn't enough to take away my sin. It took years to sink in. But now I know that when Jesus hung there on the cross, with the sins of the world bearing down upon His perfect soul, He saw me. He saw my face. He saw me lying in that abortion clinic. 2,000 years ago, He knew what I was going to do, and He gave His life away. He took my punishment for my sin, that particular sin, she writes, as well as others. When He died, and when my heart broke because of my own sin, I was forgiven. I was set free. That is exactly why Jesus died on the cross. She concludes saying, we are all guilty, but God doesn't want us to live a life filled with guilt. He wants me to live a life filled with joy. And now, when I think about my baby... My heart misses her, and my arms long for her, but I know I am forgiven, and I can live my life. And I have peace and hope, knowing that in the next life, when I get to my real home, I will see her again. So how, how, how can someone like this be forgiven? I mean, you see, your only hope is, is the blood-bought grace in which Christ provides This is where she finds forgiveness. This is where we all need to find forgiveness. In fact, there's not a single person in this room or a single person walking up on this earth that does not need the grace of God, whether you've been involved in abortion or not. And the reality is, is because God has put His Son on the cross, He offers you that grace right now. Every single one of us is offered grace. Christ extends His nail-pierced hand with you with forgiveness in one and love in another, and He would give you all of it right now. How do you receive it? Well, read the psalm, verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress. When? When he heard their cry. That's it. Not fix your life. Not atone for your sin. Cry out to him. God, save me. And he will save you. God, forgive me. And he will forgive you. I tell you, the gospel is the best news in the world for those who condemn themselves by having an abortion or being involved in abortion or condemn themselves for any other sin that will keep you out of heaven. You need to cry out to God. The Bible says whoever cries out to Him, whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. Scripture tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is is Lord, you cry out to Him. You are my Lord. I submit my life to you and believe in His heart that God raised Him from the dead. He will be saved. Scripture's testimony. You need to cry out to Him. It is a sin that God will forgive. And lastly and quickly, it is a sacrifice that must end. It has to end, doesn't it? One day, God willing, will it please end? In fact, if you've received the gospel, right? If, as most of you have, you've been covered with grace and mercy from God by the blood of Jesus. What, what should you now do? Well, this psalm has very little application. That is, it doesn't give us instruction on how to live. But I want you to notice verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, Blessed are they who observe justice. Who do righteousness at all times. You know what? You know you want to know what to do is to seek justice. It is to overthrow oppression, pursue righteousness. You you and I need to offer a hand. Listen, we hating abortion is good, but it's not enough. It will not change anything if you just hate it in your heart. We need to promote justice, the Bible says. We need to stand up for the press. We need to pursue righteousness. We need to support causes like Mosaic and others. We need to give and we need to volunteer. We need to open our homes and consider being a foster parent. We need to vote our conscience and vote truth. We need to get involved. We need to offer a hand. More than that, we need to open our mouths. We need to tell people about the horror of this act. And I know it's uncomfortable and we don't want to. And we don't want to think about it. Just like the, the Germans didn't want to talk about the death camps down the street in their village. They'd rather just go about their day and pretend it's actually happening. But it is happening. It is happening by the thousands. We need to speak up. In fact, you know, not just tell about the horror of abortion. We need to tell them about Jesus. You want to end abortion? Bring people to Christ. Tell them that Christ would forgive them. Tell them about the work of Christ for sinners. We need to offer a hand and open our mouths and we need to get on our knees. As we considered last week, this this powerful tool of prayer, that if you abide in Christ and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We need to pray. You and I need to faithfully pray and ask God to change this land, to change hearts and help the confused and save the perishing and bind up the broken and, and perhaps most ultimately, most chiefly to forgive sins. In fact, my brothers and sisters, can we pray towards that end even now? Our Father in heaven, we are, we are, we are sorry for the sin in this land. We are ashamed of what we do. In the name of freedom, freedom, we ask, Father, that you would revive this land, that you would open eyes, that you would change hearts. How is it, Father, that the world does not see what is happening? Will you please, Father, not work in the lives of those who have power? We pray for our president, Father. We pray for our Supreme Court. We pray for our legislators, whether the federal or the state level. Father, will you open their eyes? Will you give them a heart to want to defend those who cannot speak for themselves? Will you just give clarity, that's Father, that we might see? And Father, will you please help ministries like Mosaic? Will you please help just the average Christian as they encounter, Christians in this room, as they encounter women, men, who are in the middle of unplanned pregnancies, that we could be a support and a love. We can point to an alternative. Will you protect those who are perishing, Father? Will you protect these children? Father, will you change minds even now? There are women planning to take the life of their children tomorrow. Will you this moment even now by your spirit begin to burden them? That is not the only way. There is another way. And this child is, is just that a child. He needs to be protected by their mother. Father, will you let ultimately your mercy flow in this life? Will you bring people to Christ? Will they find mercy and grace in Jesus? And Father, will you be, help us as Hamilton Baptist Church to be faithful? That we, like you, would, would want to be a father to the fatherless. That we would want to look out after orphans and widows. That we, Father, would protect those who need protecting and love those who are hurting. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.